But first, before I do, I want to tell you, I've seen a lot of blood lately. Uh, I wanted to, um, I was skiing uh, in Heavenly, which was really nice and beautiful, until Micah bit the snow. Uh, how's your eye doing, Micah? Doing all right? Okay, good. And that was a joy of mine to watch my nephew do that. And, uh, but then yesterday, it got even crazier, because I was, um, well, somewhere, uh, okay, I was using the restroom. And then my wife comes down to the hall, and she's like, Jeff, I think, Jeff, I'm, I think I'm really injured, and I, I'm like, okay, 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 and, and, and I come out there, and she, she's holding her arm, and what she had done was cut a big old gash right, right across the top of her arm, and so she's actually injured today and bandaged up, but like, so I'm like, what is going on, and she's trying to hold it, and she's telling me to get something, and I'm like finding like the most ridiculous things to try to help her. And she's like, no, I need something that's clean. I need something clean. And I'm like, okay. And I need a towel. And so I go find a towel. She's like, that's not clean. And uh, I'm like, good grief, you know. And then the kids are like crying. So she was like, there was a jar, and she was putting a candle in it. And it was fitting perfectly into the jar until all of a sudden it didn't fit. It didn't slide down anymore. And so she was like, well, I'm just going to get it in there. Well, she started doing that, and the jar just exploded, and her pressure just kind of that jar it went sliced her right across the the arm there. It was pretty scary. So it was quite tender. We went to the ER um, and spent a little bit of time there, and she's got eight stitches for it, which is nice. Uh, they did. They were kind enough to give us our own little spot in the hallway and take care of that for us. So, <laughs> but um, okay. Well, hey, let's pray. I just want to let you know what my weekend's been like. I hope you guys have had a good and exciting weekend as well. But I am excited to uh, look at the scripture with you this morning. We're in 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would reveal to us who you are. And I pray that in doing so, you would also reveal to us who we are, Lord, and how you see us. And how it is you want us to participate and, and be a part of your kingdom purposes, Lord, in this community. And so we give this time to you, uh, we give you our attention, we give you um, our thoughts, and we ask that your spirit would help us to see, help us to understand, and ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would help us to leave here um, closer to you, more on fire, and encourage, Lord, to go out and be a light for you in this community. In your name we pray, amen. amen. So as I said, we're in 2 Corinthians, and uh, we're starting a new series, and we're going to actually go all the way through 2 Corinthians here together on Sunday mornings. And so if you would start with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're just going to read the first few verses of our passage that we have this morning. How many of you guys have studied 2 Corinthians recently? A few? Okay. All right. So it's been a little while for some of you, so this will be good to uh, a refresher before we dive in. All right. So Paul. All right. This book is written by Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout... I, I practice this. Achaia. Achaia. But you have to say more like Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul does in all his letters, he talks about God's grace and his peace. He identifies himself and he identifies who he's writing to. And he's writing to those who are in Corinth and throughout 
Achaia, which is the region of, of Greece, the lower, let's just say the lower half of it, okay? And so he's uh, visited them before. We had 1 Corinthians, and we studied that together a long time ago. But he's written them other letters, and he's paid them a visit once or twice. And, uh, and he, then he, we have him writing this letter uh, where he's actually hoping, he's kind of setting up a, uh, a visit that he hopes to have with them soon. You're going to have plenty of time to hear about the church in Corinth, their situation, and Paul's ministry there, uh, because 2 Corinthians is full of it. And, uh, and it's a really exciting book, looking at Paul's heart towards the Corinthians, and a defense of his ministry there, and what he plans to do, and he expects them to do. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot to this book. I'm really excited that we get to go through it together. And uh, we're going to jump right into verse 3, and I'm going to read the next couple verses, because what we have is, a, is the beginning. It says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the same as praise, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves received from God. All right, that was the first four verses. Let's go ahead and stop right there. And so what we have is we have Paul starting off his letter to the Corinthians with a praise. And he praises God for who God is and what God has done, right? So he starts off with a praise. Praise to whom praise is due. That's our first section this morning. And in doing this praise, offering this praise, he reveals two treasures. Two treasures about who God is that Paul himself is clinging to and delighting in. All right? Two treasures that Paul has identified that are worth bringing up, and he wants the Corinthians to think about. By extension, that's what he wants us to think about this morning. These two treasures about who God is and what he does. First, the first treasure is that he is the father of mercies. The father of mercies. So is this a big deal, or is this just a title? It's a big deal. What does it mean to be merciful? You know, I studied that, and I realized, well, there is so much about God being merciful throughout scriptures that if you search for God's mercy, you'll find example after example, verse after verse. I was, so I thought, well, what does it mean to not be merciful? Uh, not being merciful is to treat somebody very harshly. For instance, although the mayor had apologized already, the press showed him no mercy, right? We will, or will show no mercy to the opposing team. Regardless of their situation, they're getting no mercy, right? Mercy and compassion, this is from, um, from a book I read. Mercy and compassion denote or speak of care and concern and empathetic feeling for another person. In the Bible, mercy and compassion are most perfectly demonstrated by God's own merciful and loving care for his people, in particularly the gift of mercy through his son, Jesus. 
But this word that's used here isn't the basic word for mercy, the one that's always translated mercy. Uh, this one, you know, that we've always like kind of grown up, mercy is not getting what you're due. You guys ever heard that? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Well, this verse is actually, this word is actually a little bit more expressive of God's, it's a statement that describes his heart. It kind of zooms into his, his feelings of lovingness, loving care. Not just, a, 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 let's say, a mental assent to not give you what you deserve, but there's actually, you can insert the word pity into that. There's like this, like, I see you, and I see what you're going through, and my heart goes out to you, and, and that's the mercy that's described with this particular word for mercy. It reminds me of the psalm. It says, God is close to the brokenhearted. And the idea is that he moves towards us with eyes that convince us of his awareness and his concern. These words speak of the tenderness that he sustains towards us. Makes me think of Exodus 34. Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God ends up putting him behind the cleft. He stands before him in, in Exodus 34. says, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And then the Lord passed in front of him, and he proclaimed, Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and rich in faithful love and truth. He's rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, which made me think of Ephesians 4 just now, when it says, God who is rich in mercy made you alive in Christ, even though you were dead in your... He's rich in this. This aspect of who God is, Paul uses it as like, almost like a description of, of the essence of who God is. God, the Father of mercies. He's rich in mercy. But he will not leave, it says, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And here's the other side, also true about God, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It's kind of interesting to think that some of us are experiencing the consequences of sins from three or four generations ago. Some of the consequences, some of the effects of those choices. I actually thought back into my family's history. I think it was my great-grandfather died when he was really, really young. And my great-grandmother married a, a, a man who was abusive. And so my grandfather had an abusive father from the time he was 7 to 14. Never told he was loved. He was just an object to be beaten and, and controlled, right? Well, how does that affect a kid? Well, at 14, he leaves... St. Louis, and he comes out, and he lives in California. Well, a few years later, the war starts, and he goes into the war. Well, he comes out of the war, an alcoholic, disillusioned, um, but raises my dad. My dad had an alcoholic, disillusioned father, didn't understand love, and didn't know how to show love. My dad never heard the words that I love you. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's consequences to these sins these things, they, 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 they don't just disappear. You know what I mean? And that's an example. So my dad 
was, was a good man, you know what I mean? And he, you know what I mean? Like I'm in the fourth generation. Some of those effects have, have started to wear off, but I've been able to identify some of the, the effects of having a dad who had no love from his father. My dad actually loved me so much. He was so eager to, to convince me otherwise because he never got it. And he just lavished on me. I couldn't do anything wrong in my dad's eyes. That's why my sisters say I was the favorite, and, uh, which worked out okay for me at the time. You know, but I don't know. Maybe there are some negative consequences. Maybe a little over-inflated value within my... No, I don't know. I just... No, I don't know the, the consequences. And I didn't mean to get into that. Um, but here we are. So, the second treasure that Paul draws out and he wants us to value is God is the God of all comfort. In verse 4, it talks about he comforts us in all of our affliction. God is the God of all comfort. Comfort now, it's this, it's the consolation. Consolation and reassurance, can't talk, but the reassurance of those who are in distress, anxiety, or need. Such comfort, it's an essential aspect of human relationships. Scripture declares that God comforts his people in times of distress. You can think of like, there's Isaiah 49, 13. It declares, Shout for joy, you heavens and earth. Rejoice. Mountains break into shout, joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. The Lord is the comforter. It's actually the word that's from the original, or the group of words, the para, paraclete, paracleos. You guys ever heard that? It was used in John to describe the paraclete. There was, it was, it's a related word or a, a, what do you call it, a derivative of that root word. But here we have a picture of God as one who comes alongside of to bring consolation for those who are in distress. We're going to talk more about that. That's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. Let me just ask this question. Why does he do it? Why does he choose to come alongside of us and comfort us in our affliction? In verse 4, let's read verse 4 together. It says, He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So it's so that we can be a comfort to other people when they are in moments of distress and when their life is turned upside down. You know, it says any kind of affliction. So God's comfort and our walking through those moments and and experiencing who God is and discovering who God is equips us to be able to bring comfort to people in, in all sorts of types of affliction, all kinds of affliction. In fact, I want to read this passage. I've really been drawn to this picture of, of God, the God of all comfort, and it reminded me of two things. Number one, it reminded me of Jesus when he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Come to me, learn from me, and you will see rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart. This is God telling you, 
hey, I understand what you're going through. And he has tenderness towards us. And he wants to come alongside of us so that we can continue on. So there's a book that I've been reading. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I would recommend it to you. Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. And he says this, When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our finger, when we can't sort out our emotions, when a longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we're laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the, full, the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel there, right there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us. Solidarity. He comforts us so we can comfort others in all kinds of affliction. And he meets us in all kinds of affliction because he's the God of all comfort. I want to just pause. We're going to break out of our little uh, sermon a few times, and I just want to, like, start to make a list with you. How? How do we become a comfort to others? You know what I mean? Like, how are we supposed to actually do that? He comforts us with com- so that we can be a comfort to others. And I think that we're going to see about five steps this morning together. How to comfort others. I think first, we have to start, we have to remember, number one, he is the comforter. God is the comforter. He's the real comforter. He's the healer. He's the one who sees. He's the one who knows. He's the father of all mercy and compassion. So first, we've got to remember, he's the comforter, not us. But two, we have to move towards them. We have to move toward somebody who's experiencing their life getting turned upside down, who's experiencing a loss, who's experiencing pain, who's experiencing affliction, sorrow, sadness. We have to move toward them in compassion. Do we need to say something brilliant? No. But do we need to move towards them? Yes. It's going to require mercy. It's going to require a choice, a loving choice to feel for them and to long for their good without giving them what they deserve, but instead blessing them with a goodness think, how has God shown me mercy? So as we move further into the text, so we've seen that Paul praises God, the Father, for his comfort and for being a father of mercy, uh, and he, it leads him to explain further what the implications are. And what we find out is that we are not alone. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 7 together. But first, verses 5 through 6, let's read that. It says, for as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ, our comfort also overflows. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. 
If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is experienced in your endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. There's a lot of talk about suffering here. In fact, if you highlighted the word suffer in that whole section, you would find you know, quite a few references of the word comfort and, and, and affliction. Affliction is a theme in this text, all of 2 Corinthians. But comfort, comfort, it keeps coming up. Paul is going to take some time in a minute, but I'm already starting to wonder, aren't you, like, what is he talking about? What are, what are the afflictions that he's just, you know, experiencing? What does he mean? And how are we supposed to learn from it? If it's just Paul suffering his ministry, like, does this really relate to me? But I think there's a truth here. There's a truth here that says, you're not alone. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know, you're not alone. You might be going through something right now, and I want you to know that I've been there too, and you're not alone. I want to be a comfort to you. Because Jesus Christ was a comfort to me, and I want to extend that. You know, we're not alone. Look, we have, look around this room. All of us are following Jesus, right? That's our hope. You're not alone, but we tend to think we are. Isn't that interesting? We still tend to think that we're alone. I want you to notice what happens as a result of comfort. In verse 6, it says, Comforting results in endurance. The, the whole verse, verse 6 says, If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Right? The result of having someone come alongside you is that you can keep moving through the suffering. Another quote, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation but the bible corrects us our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in we are never alone that sorrow that feels so isolating so unique was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present so we are not alone but we think we are and what we think really matters. You know, our series actually is called Renovation, Identity Under Construction. That's what we're looking at in 2 Corinthians. Because what we think about who we are really is going to shape the way that we behave. Really, it should be rooted in Scripture, and it should tie back to what we've come to understand about who God is. But sometimes we find ourselves not living in the reality in which God has died to create through his son Jesus. And so, we're going to take a look at our identity in Christ and see what that means for us and how we're supposed to live. You know, when it talks about Christ's sufferings, we know that Jesus 
died on the cross for our sins. And I don't mean to conflate the idea that that Paul is thinking that we're furthering anybody's salvation by sharing with Christ and his sufferings. Uh, Indeed, Christ suffered on the cross immensely. But we also know that Christ's sufferings include everything that it meant for Jesus to come from heaven to be man and everything that it meant for him to be a human and walk on life. It reminds me of Hebrews 4 where it talks about we don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? He understands what it's like to be us. And in that is an encouragement. We're going to actually probably read that together later. It's an encouragement to understand that we can still go to God because he gets our situation. This is why we need people to come around us. We're not alone. This is why we are also comforters ourselves. Because there's some wounds that just won't heal up on their own. They leave us really vulnerable to infection. JJ said, Mom, why did they have to stitch you up? And the reality is, is the wound was such that it wasn't going to close up on its own. Or if you left it and tried to, like, bandage it, it'd be really susceptible, right? To infection. So just like in the physical world, where wounds can really take your life away if they're not dealt with, in the emotional and the heart level, our wounds and our suffering can lead to infections as well. And I'm particularly thinking of the infection called bitterness. Bitterness is a feeling of anger and resentment caused particularly by perceived unfairness in suffering or by adverse circumstances. Paul needed to know desperately that he wasn't alone. Look at some of the ways that God helped Paul experience his comfort. Because remember, this was a praise. He came off of this experience that he had just had. And the the thing that he wanted to say most after that to the church in Corinthians was, praise God, he's the God of comfort and the, the father of mercies. Paul desperately needed to know that he wasn't alone. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, and and what I want you to catch is, what was it? How did Paul experience God's comfort? What were some of the ways? He says, in fact, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears inside. But God, who comforts the humble, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you, the Corinthians. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul was comforted by God. Paul is comforted by Titus. Paul is comforted by the Corinthians. We're not alone. But what happens when we start to act like we are? What happens when we start to act like we're alone? And we move 
towards isolation, and we stop sharing our needs, and we stop allowing other people to comfort us, and we stop going to God as the source of our comforter. Verse 7, okay, says, And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in sufferings, so you will share in the comfort. This is a very confident hope. It's a finality. These aren't weak wishes. Yeah, and we hope you're going to get through it. It's a confidence. Our hope, absolutely firm. Because we know, we've actually experienced. We've experienced this. We expect you to experience this too. As you share in the sufferings, you will share in the comfort. We're completely convinced, not maybe you will. Completely convinced that you will share in the comfort. So he is our comforter. And he is full of love towards you. And you have people around you, people that God intends to be part of your comforting process, part of his comfort to you. And you will be responsible someday to be the comforter, to comfort somebody else. How? How are you going to comfort somebody else? Well, remember, number one, we're going to remember who God is. He's the real comforter. Number two, you have to move toward a person who's in affliction or distress. And number three, we have to be a presence in their life. You have to be a presence in their life. Yesterday, as I sat at the end of a bed in the hallway at the ER, while a doctor sewed eight stitches into my wife's arm, a few people were moving down the hall in the distance towards us. And as they got closer, I noticed a little girl leading the pack. She was looking curiously at what this doctor was doing over this patient in the hallway. And as she walked by, she continued to look until she finally got a view of both what she wanted to see and what she didn't really want to see. And as she passed by, she squirmed and she shook and she couldn't help but cringe. And she, out of her mouth just came this, ugh. <laughs> Involuntarily. Well, that's not good enough, is it? Let me ask you, who is more of a comfort? A comforter. The nurse that was standing by or the little girl? Me, sitting there at the end of the bed, rubbing her foot, or the little girl? You see, it's not enough just to look in on a person's situation. Hmm. Yeah, you're in a rough spot. Looks bad out there. You're in a bad spot. But see, we hesitate here. What should I say? What should I, what should I do? What, what can I really do? Well, number four, speak if necessary. But mostly just show them that you're in this with them. So three, be a presence in their life. You don't have to have an answer. Like, what would, what would I say? I mean, I could just, you don't want to, you know, sometimes what we accidentally do is we try to minimize somebody else's discomfort. We try to minimize somebody else's pain. We try to put the little silver lining around their dark cloud. 
I could have said things like, babe, I'm just glad you still have another arm. <laughs> Look, babe, it's not as bad as giving birth. I saw that, and this, you're not as much pain right now. How about, I'm sorry, babe, that looks so painful. You see, what Jesus does is he moves towards our situation, and he understands what we're going through, and he loves us. And then he does the healing, and then he moves us into wholeness. All right, well, we're in verse 8. You guys ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, where we see that he is the deliverer. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves that we would not, so that we would not trust in ourselves but God who raises the dead. He starts verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers. We, we want you to know this. Do you, what we experienced in Asia was overwhelming. Asia is across the Aegean Sea from Greece, Corinth, Achaia. And that's actually where Paul was ministering for a long time. Churches like Laodicea, Philadelphia, Ephesus. Recognize those names? Those are the churches, right? Those are the churches that Jesus had words for that you guys just studied over the last couple months. And so if he wanted to talk about Ephesus, he probably would have just mentioned specifically Ephesus. We know some from Acts, a lot of the things that he experienced in Ephesus. And I don't want to steal like a lot of the, the conversation for later in our book of 2 Corinthians, but it seems like it would be from more some of these more hidden parts of Asia. Some of this, what, what was this weight? What was this oppression that he would despair even of life? And the word for despair is the idea that, that there looks like there's no way out. And what is this death sentence in his heart? I'm like, this is Paul. Maybe, it, maybe he knew that Ultimately, his following Christ would lead to, to his death. Maybe, maybe he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord's like, yeah, death is, death is in your future. Yeah. Just not right now. Like, maybe he carried in himself the idea that, like, I'm, I'm dying for the gospel. Like, I know, I know what he's called me to do. Like, I'm in this for the long haul. But he felt within himself, he felt whatever it was, he felt like, I'm dying here. And if, if, I don't get, if I don't get something soon, I'm not going to make it. And then he leaves that, and he goes up to Troas, and then uh, he couldn't find uh, Titus there, or Timothy, one of his buddies. And he's like, 
I don't have any peace about being here. I gotta go. So he goes to Macedonia, and then that's that part we read. He gets to Macedonia, and it was even like, it was even worse. There was just no peace. You think of depression. You can think of times in your life where there seems to be no way out. The unavailability of an exit. The turmoil of losing hope in a situation that seems like a dead end. How is this for suffering and affliction? He's deep in it. We get to these places in life. As a Christian, Paul is a Christian, when we are overwhelmed beyond our strength and even despairing of life, this is real suffering. You know? It's not like whining because you had to wear a mask for a year and a half because someone told you you had to. This is real affliction where people are threatening his life. Hardship. Persecution. Real affliction. But it brought him to a place in verse 9 where it says, I'm not going to trust in myself. I can't trust in myself. I don't have a way out of this. I can't think my way out of this situation, and I can't do my way out of this situation. I just don't have anything left to give. But he, in that moment, turns to God to trust in the God who brings life out of death, order out of chaos, and light out of darkness, and hope out of despair. Not me, not my strength, not my ingenuity, not you, not your strength. It's God's work, and he alone has the power to deliver us through the darkness, comfort us in the midst of our deepest sufferings. It says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to the confession. Because we don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Our last point is from the last couple verses of our passage, and it says we have to put our hope in him. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. I want you to carry this thought into these verses as I read them from our passage, 2 Corinthians 1. It says we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. We have to put our hope in him that he will deliver us again, right? So what's the best indicator you can think of of where you got your hope? What's the best indicator of where you're putting your hope? Could it be prayer? Could it be prayer? Verse 11, while you join in helping us by your prayers. Have you ever heard somebody, like if there was some sort of calamity somewhere, and, you know, you know, people are all saying, you know, best wishes and my prayers and thoughts. And like somebody writes back, keep your thoughts and prayers to yourself. Like, 
you know, kind of saying, what I really need is you to come over here and, like, you know, rebuild my house. You know, like, there's, I have a real need. I don't need your prayer. I don't need your best wishes, that kind of a thing. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever seen that kind of negativity in response? Somebody responding who's hurt, who's wounded. Maybe it's just me. I'll just go home. Paul says, prayer, joining me in prayer is real help. I think that's really important. I think that's really significant that Paul, who just described the despair of trying to do something good. You know, one of the things I think that hurts us the most, that causes the most discomfort, the most affliction, the most pain, is when we wanted something that seemed good. It was perfectly right for me to want and desire that thing, or more like, a lot of times I think it's more like perfectly reasonable that I would expect God to do this in my life, in this relationship, with this person that I love. And God allows it to be different. Not what I expected, not what I reasonably thought was normal and it just you know you, you there's these moments you're just like what and i'm angry and i'm i'm you know and, and you and it you get overwhelmed that's what paul described with emotion and then you're trying to figure out what you really think and why why what is god doing you know and you start you get this moment of crisis and you have to go to the Lord, we have to put our hope in him that he is who he says he is and that his heart towards you is compassion not to harm you. So we started uh, making a list, right? How do we comfort somebody in affliction? Number one, remember God is full of mercy. Number two, move towards them. Number three, we share God's comfort by being a presence in their life. Four, speak when necessary. And five, pray. We pray because we have a God who hears prayers, answers prayers, and who distributes comfort, distributes his mercies into people's lives in their distress. Amen? All right, I'm going to ask you to pray with me uh, in just a few moments. Melinda is going to come, and she's going to pray for us. But this is a time for you to pray. Stephen's going to help us to get focused. And I want to ask you to come before the Lord your God, the God of comfort and the God of mercy, and be willing to bring to him an area of your life that you know that you are experiencing affliction, that you are suffering because things are not the way they should be and things are not the way you hoped they'd be. And I want to ask you to pray and come to the Lord and make a, a commitment that you're going to bring those things to the Lord and let him meet you in those places.
And secondly, I want you to think, what's it look like for me to be a comforter, to move towards somebody who's in despair with mercy, not giving them what I think they might deserve, but instead choosing a loving path that says, I want to be a presence in your life. I'll pray for you. Do you need anything? So let's just bow our heads and take this time to come before the Lord.